Millions of despairing men, women and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone to Garden of Doom. This week we have a very special guest. He's part of the Nakan Nephilim, Nephilim Anthropology Conference. And his name is Vladimir Wiedemann. He's a philosopher, a writer, and a journalist. He worked for the BBC's uh, Russian Bureau, which was based out of Germany for 20 years. He was involved in the Soviet counterculture. Uh, he's a self-described hippie. Um, he's born in Tallinn, Estonia, but he's lived obviously in Estonia, Moscow, Germany, Bogota, Colombia, the United States, and in London. He's studied religions. He's taught martial arts. He's taught yoga. Uh, and he was also the secretary to Rama Tam, who is a philosopher who founded the Zero Philosophy Movement and headed the Forest Acad Academy in Estonia, uh, which, uh, well, it's described as theoretical and practical parapsychology. And uh, he, while in the BBC, he covered international politics, economics, culture. Uh, he's met Putin. He's met uh, many of the world leaders. And he's also the author of over 20 books. So welcome to the show, Vladimir. Hi, Jeff. Nice to meet you, too. Yes, thank you. Is, is there anything I left off or anything that you want to clarify or, you know, do a better uh, introduction of yourself? Well, uh, everything's fine. If there would be any questions, I can just uh, say something additionally or if you ask me anything special. Okay, well, wonderful. Um, when we were talking a little bit in pre-production, um, you were sort of going through sort of your uh, your Soviet era beginnings. So 
I mean, I have to confess, I didn't know that there was a hippie movement in the Soviet Union. Um, I guess it shouldn't come as any surprise. I just didn't know that the hippie culture made its way into the Eastern Bloc. I, I just didn't even know it was a thing. So how were you introduced to it? Uh, what was attractive uh, about it to you? Uh, sort of how, how did you overcome, uh, you know, what I perceive to be sort of the, the, the police state controlled indoctrination and, you know, have the mind to say, you know, this isn't all there is or I want to look for something else? Well, uh, the Soviet Union have not been all the time very, very close country, even it, it was actually uh, uh, comparing to the Western societies. But nevertheless, after the Second World War, and especially after the death of Stalin, the Soviets had the kind of reunification, and then uh, the life became less severe. And then there was also some a flow of Western cultural patterns to the Soviet Union, especially with the modern music and modern art, and and happened even in in the end of fifties and then in the sixties. Like for example, the Western the beatniks, and we had a kind of beatniks also in the Soviet Union. People like Western music, like rock and roll and Elvis Presley, and uh, abstract painting. Uh, so it started uh, even in, in the 60s. And then, especially with the beginning of Beatles and Rolling Stones, this Western music came to the Soviet Union, but not via concerts, but via the radio, because at that time, the radio was, still was there. And you can listen to uh, the Western radio stations and uh, not necessarily American, but also some uh, Western countries close to the Soviet borders like Finland, Sweden, and uh, Western Germany, and so forth. And then the Beatles made really a revolution in the Soviet society, and people were really crazy. I remember myself, I was, at that time, I was uh, a schoolboy in the primary school, and uh, we had some photographs and pictures of Beatles and we sell it to each other. Uh, and it was really, really like uh, fun. And then you know, all, all bought the guitars and, uh, and start playing the Beatles songs, rock and roll and something like that. This was the beginning. And then and shortly after Woodstock Festival and this hair, production uh, made in the in the Western countries uh, and the Soviets uh, start uh, start understanding the hippies so uh, the hippie was something very very trendy in the Soviet Union uh, like long hair and a very very colorful dress but even it it was really really troublesome being hippie in the Soviet Union, first of all, because of the lack of information, but there was still some information was there, especially in my country, in, in my republic, Estonia, I was born in Estonia, and Estonia is a small republic on the border, western border of the Soviet Union, close to Finland, between like Finland and St. Petersburg. And we had a, a Finnish te uh, te television in, in, in Tallinn, in Estonia, and, and also the party Swedish one. So we can really watch the Finnish TV and with all this rock and roll stuff and then uh, alternative culture. 
And um, many Estonians, and uh, as well as other uh, people from other uh, Baltic republics like like Latvia and Lithuania, they had many relatives in in the West because of uh, the so the Second World War, and some of uh, 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 some of uh, uh, Estonians and uh, other Latvians and Lithuanians they immigrated to the West. And uh, but the connections were were still there. So we had relatives, and the, the relatives uh, uh, visited us from time to time in the Soviet Union uh, because it was not so severe as in the Stalin time. And uh, all this information came this, like, like Western clothes and, uh, and uh, LPs and uh, magazines and everything. But also to the deep Russia, first of all, uh, Petersburg and Moscow. Uh, uh, there was a, some sort of um, communication with the Western culture because of uh, uh, international relations. And especially people from St. Petersburg and Moscow, they were not just simple people somewhere in the countryside, but they were involved in an international e exchange in different ways. So this hippie movement started in the Soviet Union uh, from uh, after Woodstock and especially in the beginning of 70s. So it was really like very, very trendy. But trendy, as I say, not it was like a mass culture, but it was something like special because we consider that the hippies are is a representation of the free world. And I would like to 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 accent as a difference between Soviet and American and Western hippies. And sure. the, the, the difference was very, very special. And because for us in the Soviet Union, Freedom was something what might oppose to the Soviet system. That means if the Soviets uh, are uh, asking for socialism and for like uh, leftism, uh, all this kind of leftist solidarity and uh, against capitalism. Uh, but for us, the freedom was exactly uh, vice versa. So the freedom was a capitalist. Capitalism, United States, America, American way of life, everything what opposed the Soviet style of life. That's why the Soviet hippies were not leftists. We didn't support Marxism like uh, Americans did. American hippies, I mean, uh, um, uh, reading Marcuse and uh, Walter Benjamin and people like that. So the American and Western hippies were mostly left. So they were for, for socialism for 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 uh, red china for mao zedong and and so forth but we in the soviet union for us the paradise was not in socialism but vice versa in capitalism that's why we were like pro american somehow supporting american idea and the western hippies they supported mostly like red idea i don't know maybe soviet union maybe something like that maybe uh, uh, red china but nevertheless that was the difference but what was common for, for all, all of us, that we were against the ruling system. In, in the West, the hippies were like uh, free youth. They uh, criticized uh, the bourgeois society. They criticized the generation of their parents. Uh, and they started with the psychedelic culture, trying to oppose the common uh, modern and uh, hippie culture to uh, to the, like the bourgeoisie, to the culture of their parents. So did we. 
but if uh, the the culture of Western appearance was like a truly bourgeois culture with uh, uh, like shoppings and the consumerism uh, in the Soviet Union, it was uh, the the culture of our parents was uh, like uh, the proletarian morality, uh, the uh, supporting supporting the state and. So we also we we fought the culture of our parents. We but we fought the this conservative culture with the same means, with the same tools, long hair. And um, in the Soviet Union, if you wear long hair, the police was really 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 opposed it, and they believed that people with long hair, men with long hair, uh, are supporters of capitalism, like in 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 the West. If you wear long hair, that means you are leftist. You support the socialism, communism. So, <laughs> same with the rock and roll. Rock and roll like a, 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 a protest music. So we protested uh, against our repressive system and our Western uh, partners. They uh, protested against uh, their own oppressive system. So we had something common, but ideologically we were different. But we were the same, uh, also ideological, that, that we were for free love, we were against uh, uh, militarism, for, for pacifism, for everything like that. So the commonality was on the, you know, the the the, the peace and sex. <laughs> kind of, yes, exactly. Free love, peace and sex, yes, and rock and roll. And uh, we we tried to avoid hard jobs, to uh, military service, and something like that. So we preferred uh, hitchhiking, uh, traveling around. And uh, if even if the Soviet Union was a pretty close country, but it's uh, luckily it's it's too big. It's not like Northern Korea, so we could travel and hitchhiking uh, from the western shore in Baltic Sea until the uh, Pacific Ocean. So it was I don't know how many ten ten thousand miles or something like that. So and the Central Asia, Caucasus, and virtually it was the world in itself, but it was very, very similar to the Western hippies. They traveled between like New York, Amsterdam, and Delhi in India, Afghanistan. And we traveled between St. Petersburg and Black Sea coast and Central Asia, like Bukhara, Uzbekistan, and to Buryatia with the Buddhist monasteries and to, up to uh, the Pacific, uh, Pacific Ocean. But it was like a California because uh, on the other side of Pacific Ocean, there was already California. We could face California and, <laughs> and vice versa. In the western shore, uh, the Baltic, Baltic border, it's the border to, to Western Europe uh, already. Yeah, but it, it's funny. First of all, you say you can see California. It's a little bit like Sarah Palin saying that she was watching Russia from Alaska. Exactly. But, That's yeah. it. When, when we imagine Russia, I think we think mostly of, you know, Putin, white Caucasians, blonde hair, blue eyes, maybe. But Russia is, like you said, it's like 10,000 miles long. It's very ethnically diverse. Um you know, going through many of the stands in Central Asia and then into, well, far Asia. So um, it, it, there's a whole lot, I mean, enormous amounts of history there and uh, tons of uh, peoples and part of the Mongol Empire, you know, came came from Russian tribes or clans. I, I don't really know the difference between a tribe and a clan. Um, but yeah, I have I have probably a really silly question for you, but I know that you taught martial arts, but 
Where do you learn martial arts? Like, where do you learn the martial arts to be able to teach them in the Soviet Union? Could you go for lessons? Was it part of school? Were you in the military? I mean, how, how do you get the expertise in the martial arts as a youth in, this, in the Soviet Union to be able to then go on to teach it underground? Yes, well, it all starts somewhere probably in, in the 70s already, the martial arts in the Soviet Union. And the way we had a, a few resources. One of the resources was like Western books, all these books with pictures, with explanation, and then you can just really follow these instructions uh, watching what is written there, because the English was uh, really, really spoken in the Soviet Union. We had the English in, at school, uh, starting from even, in, even in, the, in the primary school, we had already English or uh, French and German lessons. So it, it was books and some magazines coming from the West. The second source was uh, the films. Uh, the Japanese, uh, not uh, at that time was not very, uh, not too many Chinese films, but nevertheless there were some some video resources. And then uh, an, an, another source was the Chinese and the other Oriental students in the Soviet Union, like Vietnamese and then so forth, Koreans and most uh, first of all China, Chinese who studied as a students from the socialist countries. They studied in the Soviet Union and some of them were carriers of these martial arts technologies, uh, like traditional technologies. And that was a point to, to get the information. And then we tried to develop it in, in, in our own way somehow, but there, there was a feedback to, to some to original carriers uh, like Chinese or to Western literature. But it was, everything was strictly forbidden uh, as for martial arts. If uh, the police would knew you are you are, is a coach in martial arts, you might face even a, a jail for 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 that. But the, they would put you in, in a jail not because of martial arts, but because of private business. So if you are a coach, you should somehow to support yourself. Then you collect money uh, from your disciples to 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 get a, a sport hall. You need to pay for that. Even it was also not not allowed it. But you should do it in 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 the black way, not not officially, because of the socialist economy. All kind of private initiative, private business was forbidden. But the, there was a corruption in the country, and people used to 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 get money uh, in the private way, just uh, uh, being active under the law. So where the martial arts? So was was me. So I rent a, a sports hall in one secondary school. I just paid money for for this administration of the school, and I found some disciples, and that was the, the, the story. So, uh, but uh, yes, it was it was strict forbidden, as I said. It was also the black market for all this kind of literature, but not only martial arts were forbidden. Also yoga, for example, was forbidden, and all kind of private initiatives. Even then, uh, you, you couldn't just uh, have any any cafe or any any club for conversation, because if uh, it's a private conversation that means something beyond of state control, and it was already the, uh, you you would be under suspicion that you are doing something wrong. You are doing something what is under uh, uh, beyond of state control, and then you might face troubles. And there were many people who just really faced troubles, even up to the enjailment. In uh, luckily, I. I had no any any like severe troubles, but I was very cautious. I was uh, uh, I tried to, to to do my best in order to avoid troubles. 
street smart. So would, would the yoga story be similar to the martial arts story? You, you sought it out through books and then, uh, I, you know, I guess uh, migrant peoples and, uh, you know, and, and people on, you know, that came from those parts of the world that uh, came to the Soviet Union. That was the same, you know, sort of a parallel path to get to the yoga expertise. Yes, yoga was a different story, but also because we had some people who used to, to study in India, some philology or history, anything like the students of, of India culture, they traveled to India, uh, a very small amount of them, and they, they could contact yoga people. As for me, I used to know uh, one very, very cool, great yogi in, in the Soviet Estonian. He was a... a the old person, I when I met him, I was 22, he was 66. Uh, but he was an Estonian who immigrated to the Western Europe even before the Second World War. He went to the Western Europe, to Germany, uh, as a student to study architecture and, and, and the construction science. And then he, he, he studied in Germany, and then even during the Second World War, he didn't return to the Soviet Union, uh, because at that time, Estonia was already occupied by the Soviets, and it turned out from the free Estonian state into the Soviet Republic. So he, he decided to stay in, in Europe, in Germany at that time. And after the war, he, uh, he studied in Berlin, and then he moved to the western part of Germany, and he was in, in American occupation zone in western Germany, so to say. And he, he, he lived in Germany until 1956. And while living in Germany, he used to know some, uh, some European mystics and also some Hindu gurus and missions and everything. And he studied yoga in western Germany, and he got an initiation from Ramakrishna mission, and he already uh, got an invitation from India, from one Indian ashram in Himalaya, because he was about to move to India and to stay already there, to practice yoga in India uh, till the rest of his life, because he was really, really like strong in yoga and in all this Advaita philosophy and then in, in Indian philosophy, basically. Uh, but he was, not a mem uh, he was not a citizen of Western Germany, because he was a citizen of uh, Estonian Republic, which was... Uh, uh, cancelled by Soviets, but uh, that's why he lived in Germany as a, so to say, foreigner with a non a blue passport. Yes, but what, it was not a problem for him. It was not also a problem for him to, to, to make up for India. But he decided to visit, his, to visit Estonia on the way to India because he was looking to visit the grave of her mom. Her mother died at that time and his father as well. And he asked the Soviet officials in, the, in Western Germany, could he as a foreigner visit Soviet Union just on his way to India? And they say, no, yes, no problem. Okay, with pleasure. <laughs> and he entered the Soviet Union and then he couldn't get out of there again <laughs> because they tried to press him to to take a Soviet citizenship, but he ref, he refused, and this was a story that he he spent 25 years in the, in the Soviet Estonia under the police control. He was not imprisoned because there was no reason to to imprison him. It was also after the death of Stalin. That's why the situation was not so severe. But nevertheless, they did let him go. And I, I, I met him when I was, as I said, 22. It was in the, in the mid of 70s. And then I, I learned from him Hatha Yoga and Raja Yoga and uh, all kinds of these meditations. And he had some literature brought from, from Germany. Uh, and uh, we had uh, like a, 
as our own group of of yogis of people who were like disciples of of this person his name was michael tam michael tam and we all called him rama because rama was his hindu name so the rama uh, he also he used to to write some philosophical texts and uh, what is interesting he, in the beginning he wrote in estonian and then he started writing a little bit in german but mostly in english because he was well in english as well and he said Estonian is a very small language, but English is like worldwide uh, language for other people who are, who might read my text. He wrote in English. Is Estonian very different than Russian? Absolutely different. Yes, no, you can't compare it at all. Okay. So and then he built a small society around himself. And he wrote books. We made it in some is that like with self printing stories. And then in the end of, in 81, he got a permission to move, to leave the Soviet Union because uh, after I met him, I brought my own young friends to himself. And then they brought, they were connected to the dissidents, me as a hippie. I, I had uh, vast connections in all the Soviet Union in, in terms of hippies, dissidents, alternative artists on Bohemia, all kind of like uh, quasi non-Soviet minded uh, people. And uh, I explained the story to my friends from political uh, dissidents already. And then they believe that, yes, we should help to this person just to escape the Soviet Union. And they start on and then they managed to get a, a permission for him to leave the Soviet Union. So, so he left the Soviet Union in uh, 81. And then he said to all of us, his close friends, that if you would like to 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 develop yourself uh, spiritually, I advise you to follow me. Just leave this country because there will be really, really um, a lot of troubles in this country in a few years because the system will collapse. And then, uh, but it's all that means all this collapse means headache, all kind of troubles. So, but we, we yogis, we are not like people like that. We we are not looking for some troubles in the life. And he said, just leave this country. And we left. In a way, everybody could do it. Uh, I personally, I just paid some money for one Colombian citizens, one one uh, Colombian professor from Bogota University who worked in the Moscow State University, just uh, not really work, but he, but she learned Russian yeah, as, a, uh, as, as a Colombian professor. And yeah. um, uh, some of my friends introduced me and I said, yes, I let, look, I, I, I just pay you money. And then we make uh, this, the marriage, the mock marriage. And then uh, and she, she agreed. She said, yes, okay, let's do it. So it was really a deal, something like that. Oh, you and, use that trick too. <laughs> <laughs> that was the way I, I, I escaped from the Soviet Union at that time. It was in the mid of 80s, even uh, slightly before uh, Gorbachev and Perestroika. Um, and my guru, Michael Tam, he moved from the Soviet Union first to Italy. In Italy, he had still some, some old Estonian friends from this pre, pre-war time. They were still alive, and he spent a couple of months with them, and then the, our dissident friends organized to him uh, a, a place in the United States, in Boston, so he could get a state pension and apartment and everything. So he moved to Boston, and he stayed in Boston all, over 20 years, and he died in 2002. And then he, he managed to publish some of his books in English. Uh, 
Yes, that was, uh, and I moved to Colombia. I spent there almost one year and waiting for American visa because uh, uh, leaving the Soviet Union, I was so naive. I believe, oh, because the Western world is just a free world, no borders, nothing. I can just, for me, the point was escape from the Soviet Union, and then I believe I can travel free. But asking in Bogota, I came to Bogota. Even I bought the ticket, one-way ticket, just one one-way trip because I never uh, intend to go back to the Soviet Union. And uh, I say, yes, uh, would you uh, uh, grant me American visa? Because I'm looking to join my, my, my guru. They say, but you, you just moved to Colombia. You are married. You have your permanent residence in Colombia. Why are you looking to go to the United States? Yes, you can go as a tourist, but please show, show us your incomes, everything like that. And, uh, and it was like the whole story. Yes, I found some friends in, in, in Colombia. Even also my guru, he asked some American, some of his American friends help me. And even it, it was even the story because some of his American friends um, had uh, access to, uh, to the office of uh, Senator Kennedy. What was, not, not John, not Robert, who was the third brother? Jeff. Uh, of of who of which family the Kennedys? Kennedy. Uh, well, there was John. There was uh, Robert. And the third one, Ed, uh, Ted Edward. Ted probably Ted Kennedy. So they had oh, yeah, some the senator in the eighties. Yeah, he was he was the only one left alive. Yes, yes. So somehow they they had access to to Kennedy. They say yes, we have some some uh, some a person from the Soviet Union. He's just stuck in Colombia. Would you somehow to help him to get out of there because he's in a troublesome situation? And so then uh, uh, from Kennedy office they called to American embassy in Bogota. They invited me and we spoke about our situation. And then so they really helped me to to get some some financial support. In, in Colombia, uh, and then, but, uh, and uh, yes, they say, you just wait. We try to, to, to deal with your case, but you wait, and then maybe you will receive uh, the visa to the United States. I was waiting and waiting almost one year, but the visa is not, not there, and I was really tired of wa waiting all this story. And then I decided to maybe to go to back to Europe, not to Soviet Union, but to Europe, and then to, to uh, again to join my uh, my guru from, from, from the Western Europe already. And since I'm a German origin, I, I, I had a chance to, to, to get an, a German citizenship and to, to be a German citizen. And that's why I moved to Germany. And then uh, from Germany in one year, I already moved to, uh, to visit my teacher in the United States. But I didn't uh, uh, stay in the States f f forever because I, at, to that point, I already knew about more about Western countries. I see the difference between Germany, Western Germany, United States, and everything. And then <coughs> at that time, I had already my position as a BBC journalist in, in Germany. So I had job, I have everything in Germany, and Germany, Western Germany was very, very cool state. Very, very nice, I would say, like almost like Scandinavia. Uh, freedom, money, jobs, everything. Yeah, you are, and then uh, and the United States for immigrants was much, much like <laughs> just another story because I see my friends from uh, the Soviet ex uh, Soviet Union what they're doing in the United States, and it was really, really hard jobs, a taxi driver, 
or mm. something like that. And then I decided, no, that's not my cup of tea because in Germany I feel myself much more comfortable. But this was my personal story. But basically, yes, I, I was in contact with my guru. I was able to travel to United States uh, as much as I would like to. And I spent a lot of time in the United States, mostly Boston and New York. And even I wrote a book, Transatlantic Story, uh, describing my my love story with one American artist. And then all this time, uh, when this Berlin Wall just was came down, and then there was a time of great perestroika and uh, in the Soviet Union, in Germany, and partly in the United States, because the new reality came, and then it was, but it was already another story. <laughs> well, yeah, you're you're a witness to a lot of history, a lot of it firsthand. Yes, I did. As, as a journalist, I was able to contact to some very important politicians and the historical figures like like uh, Yeltsin and Gorby and even Putin and uh, Ralph Nader, for example, in the United States. Yes, and uh, I was uh, also active in the uh, in the American movement. Mm, uh, Jubilee 2000. It's about to release well debt. Uh, it was a, a, a social movement in the United States. I was very, very impressed by that. And anti-globalism. And I used to know David uh, David Corton as well. And um, uh, Professor Leonard Jeffrey from uh, American City School, I believe. He is one of the African, black African activists in the United States. And... Uh, also, yes, Joko Ono, I used to meet uh, <laughs> in, okay. the Central, in the Central Park. Yes, and then I met her a few times in Germany when he made an exhibition. So it was another story. And uh, also from the Soviet part, uh, ex-Soviet Union, I mean, uh, uh, New Russia. Uh, as a journalist, I traveled a lot also to Moscow, to Kremlin, making interviews and then attending conferences. And also in, in, in West Berlin, it was a place where this communication between the Soviets and Americans took place, especially in the Aspen Institute. And the director of the Aspen Institute, Mr. Anderson, at that time, was a friend of mine. And another friend of mine was American consul in, in West Berlin, because they knew I'm a journalist, and then I'm a nice person, very uh, like friendly and happy. And so they were. And we used just to communicate, and they invited me for certain uh, conferences and, and shows and routes. And uh, I remember this uh, conversation between uh, the Russians and Americans in Aspen Institute. And the Russians came from Moscow, uh, like politicians uh, and bankiers and the people who are responsible for the new Russian politics and economy. And they explained everything to, to the Westerners, everything, all what is behind, who is behind of whom, so absolutely open, like you are in, uh, you explain everything to one police officer, you're trying <laughs> to, to, they confess. And the, Western, the Westerners, they just keep silence, they just checking everything, and I, I this was a, just my personal opinion, I see the, how naive Russians were at that time, they just uh, played completely with open cards, maybe not everybody, but people whom I did see. Uh, they were like that. So they just sold everything, everything. They said just, yes, we are completely open. Check. Yes, we are really open. Yes, you you just say us what we have to do. Mm -hmm. And the Westerners said, you guys should do this, this and that. 
And then it, it, that was the time. Yes, that was a really a, a funny time. <laughs> All right. So let's let's. I'm trying to figure out how to how to break this up a little bit. Um, I guess that that sort of is your BBC time. Um, let, let's let's focus a little bit in on that. What were some of the big stories that you covered? What was the big stories? Yeah, some of them. Well, yeah, an example like like. I mean, I, yeah, over yes. 20 years, you you uh, sort of saw perestroika, the yes. time, the fall yes, of the mostly. It was mostly, as I said, uh, politics, what's going to happen, the, the, uh, the decay of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union uh, went apart, and there were like new republics, new politicians in the Ukraine, in the Baltic republics. And uh, by the way, uh, one of the first Estonian presidents was also the uh, correspondent in in Radio Liberty, my colleague, journalist. Mm. Uh, yes, and then uh, so that was politics, and then a German politics as well. So uh, reporting uh, from from Germany and also economy, like new trends, uh, because it was a Russian uh, Russian service. So it should be interesting for Russian audience first of all. That's why I reported. Uh, some topics from for 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 Russian audience. What is new in Europe, especially in Germany, and then uh, these conferences, connect com, uh, meetings between uh, Westerners and uh, in the Easterners, the visits of of Yeltsin, for example, to Germany or of some Rush, other uh, Soviet uh, or Russian officials. So it was, uh, as I said, politics, economy, and culture. Because it was a time when all these Russian artists moved to the West, and Berlin was the first place where they they landed, and there were a lot of exhibitions and theaters and cinema festivals, everything, everything. It was pretty interesting, a pretty interesting time. Especially Berlin, West Berlin was a like a uh, like a threshold trigger for all this communication. Right. It, was, it was like a Babylon Five. Um, yes. T tell us a little bit about Putin. You, you said that you met Putin. What, what's your impressions of Putin? Uh, you know, I, I don't want to get you killed or anything, but uh, you know, what do you have about Putin? Yes. I, I, first of all, I, I met Putin right after the 9/11, when uh, uh, he supported Americans in case of this accident, and then there was a meeting between. Um, Putin uh, uh, and American politicians he in Germany, in Western Germany. So there was a special conference uh, made by Putin uh, in one in a, in, a, in a countryside in one castle uh, uh, where it was it was just like a special event. And came Putin and uh, his his colleague German Greff. Now he is one of uh, uh, I guess he is the boss of of Sberbank, the biggest financial institution in Russia. So they came to uh, exactly to answer questions, and then um, uh, it was for me a, a possibility to speak to him because I was like a BBC correspondent, and, and Putin was just quite new in power. It was his probably first year as he was a president, elected president, and at that time he was pretty nice. He was like a, a very short uh, and then nice, and uh, he was smiling all the time, and then. He tried to be nice to other people, and then he, he was pretty popular because everybody tried to, to speak to him, to touch him, something like that. And uh, 
I, I had a, a, a good impression, but later, <coughs> I believe that to rule Russia is a very hard task. Even you might be a nice person, but uh, uh, this weight on your shoulders will transform you. I remember the words of Napoleon Bonaparte. He once said, "Yes, I I, I was a nice man as well at my time." Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so same same Putin, but. People, you also used to say he was a spy, like he was a KGB and everything like that. But I would, I was because I, I, I followed the Putin story very well, and I, I read some some books written by not by all Russians, by also by Germans. And I would could say about Putin's this KGB service, he was not like zero zero seven agent, like looking for something special, something serious. Serious. He was like a gray rat sitting in in the in the office. In, in in Dresden, writing some letters and everything. He was less very, very like typical bureaucrat. He was okay. typical bureaucrat. And one of his tasks, uh, uh, some German told me, not sure is it true or not, but I, I guess that's true. One of his tasks was to, to find within the Eastern Germans elite to find people who might oppose Honecker because already in Moscow the Gorbachev would like to get rid of Honecker of the this, the leader of of uh, Eastern Germany at that time because Honecker was a hardliner the, the communist hardliner and uh, probably even ex-red terrorist and once Honecker H- said Honecker the person huh? Honecker the person Yes, it's Hanukkah like, is the like person. you're saying Hanukkah, the, the Jewish holiday. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> no, no, no. Honecker, Erich Honecker, the leader of DDR. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> yes, yes. He, exactly. And he was a hardliner. And once he said to, to uh, there was a, a, a meeting of, or conference of uh, East European autocrats or, or presidents at that time, at the time of or Gorbachev, and uh, uh, one of the witnesses wrote uh, afterwards that Honecker said about Gorbachev, this idiot will b- bring tro- troubles to, for all of us. Yes. And okay. that was the case. And so th- coming back to Putin, and uh, Putin was like looking for op- opposition to Honecker because his task was not to support communism, but vice versa, to get rid of Honecker and to get rid of this Eastern German Socialism, probably. Well, it was, I guess, just a, a rival um, power, a, a rival charismatic leader, I, I suppose. Um, all right, let's get back to uh, uh, Rama Tam. And what is zero philosophy? Yes, zero philosophy is, is the following. He, as I said, he studied architecture in Germany, and then he studied also the nuclear physics. He was interested in the way the reality is built up. And then uh, studying this Western approach, uh, like Einstein and Niels Bohr and all other the Western physicians and mathematicians, he found that something is wrong in, in, in the scientific approach. And I mean, not the scientific, but the positivistic approach. Something is wrong. And at the same time, so since he was interested in philosophy, he also he read the Eastern philosophy, the Indian, the Chinese, most of all Indian. And he even uh, learned Sanskrit, Sanskrit and Old Greek at that time. And then he found that 
this Eastern approach is different because they have different mentalities. They have different mental patterns. They have really, so to say, different approach to everything. And he tried to, to bring together this, uh, the Greek philosophy and Hindu philosophy. And uh, to, so to say, Western science and Eastern mysticism, something what Dalai Lama is trying to do now. But Dalai Lama is not as very much intellectual. He, 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 is not, he didn't study nuclear physics and he didn't study the modern mathematics, but Ramatam did. That's why. And he tried to, to, to build up like a, something like a special, a special philosophy. And he wrote his uh, zero hypothesis theory, or null hypothesis theory. That's his, uh, that's his, his approach, his philosophy, uh, how to reunite intellectual models of Western and Eastern philosophies. That's his point. And then he, uh, there are some texts dedicated to his own approach, uh, terminology and uh, patterns and everything. And then the, also criticism of Western as well as Eastern philosophies. He tried to, to explain to other people how to, if you read Western or Eastern philosophies, uh, different branches of philosophy, in which way you should understand it. So you, how you can check the, this, uh, uh, the problems what is the point and something like that. So he is, he is actually a mystical philosopher, as he liked to say, first of all. I read some stuff on the internet uh, about you and tied into him as well. And it, the mystical sort of went into some interesting historical directions as well and some anthropology, uh, anthropological uh, directions as well. Can you... Um, uh, tell our audience about uh, those things in whatever order you prefer. Uh, sorry, would you repeat it once again? Um, well, it, it's well. Actually, I'm not. I may be uh, connecting the two, but I, but I'm not sure if it was Ramatam or your own studies. But you went into the uh, sort of. Like, I know that Ramatam studied a lot of religions, and you studied a lot of religions as yes. a result, obviously. Uh, and you came to some interesting anthropological uh, conclusions yes. as well. Could you uh, sort of uh, share some of those with our audience? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, first of all, what I would like to say, once I have an uh, enlightenment experience in my life, I was about like 30 years old. I, was in the, uh, I traveled at that time to the Central Asia already practicing meditation and yoga and everything. And uh, I used to stay almost one month uh, long in absolutely isolation in the high mountain area in uh, in the eastern Pamir, uh, western Pamir. Sorry, that's in Tajikistan high mountains. And then, in which country? Uh, in which country? I'm sorry. It was at that time. It was Soviet Union, Tajikistan. Tajikistan. This is a border to Afghanistan. It, that's exactly now where the Taliban just <laughs> have their fights. Uh, high mountain area and uh, i used to stay in this mountain area almost one month long being completely isolated of everybody but, but by the way this is this was how i was going to imagine that the the martial arts and the yoga stories were going to be that you had to go to some high monastery in a mountain on a borderland and be trained like a like a movie um yes. so that, that's oh. that's that's me in this area Oh, for the he, he's showing a picture of the cover of a book. It's black and white, and he is doing a handstand, 
and he's sort of built like a Greek god. So, uh, but he's upside down, like at the base of a, looking like a high peak Himalaya mountain. So yeah. that, that's really cool. Um, I, I have a picture of myself doing the same thing. I, I can't find it right now. But yeah. The, yeah, so what I would like to say, in, in this area, life, I, approximately in a few, in five, six days after being there in, in this area, I, I start listening to like a, a, some voices. I believe that should be a radio, maybe shepherds, maybe tourists or some mountaineers are, are approaching and they, they just they turn radio on. But then it was very, very, it's like quiet, quiet music. But in one, two hours, but they still didn't approach. And then I start listening to what's, what kind of music and music was very, very nice. And then I realized it's something like 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 Bach or some this kind of music, like celestial voices. And then it, it came slightly <coughs> more loud, but not very much loud. And then, then I realized that that's, this music is coming from the heaven, from, from the sky, not from someone, one source like radio. And then, and then I start listening to this music. And then I realized really like this is like a celestial music, like voices, angels' voices. And then later it start being more and more dark. And then the first stars appeared on the sky. And I realized that every voice is coming from, from different stars. And all together they build up a huge symphony. And you can listen to every single voice doing like his special melody. Or you can listen to the whole as a whole. And as a whole, it was like a symphony. And then I realized also that uh, I'm not only listening to this, the cosmos, the universe, but also I am a part of universe because I also, I can feel the universe. I can feel, for example, the mountains on the distance, even touch them with my tongue, uh, trees and everything. And I feel like I've, all this space around me is myself so my own energy covers all this space so i really can check if there will be any animals or any 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 people in, if there will be in this space and i realized that probably this was a vision of maybe of s s several animals if they feel the territory it, what is the way they control their territory they really feel it because they are part of this territory and also the old old humans probably like Neanderthal or old hunters, they like feel this territory completely as a part of themselves. So they, this was their natural identity. And then you feel space around themselves, yourself and the universe. And they, if you meditate, and this was my starting point, I started realizing that me is not only this physical body, me is the whole universe and not just the, this visible universe, but it's also beyond of Milky Way that every, all being as such, is me so my body is not just physical body my body is the whole universe and you if you identify yourself with the whole universe you then also your mind is not only this mind which um, had any reflections connecting to this body your brain and your uh, your feelings but a universal consciousness that means the consciousness of our universe or maybe not on the universe but multiverse so to say so that's something beyond of everything this was my like a cosmical experience. I start under I the first thing I, I really understood that I am not just this body. I am everything, because there is no uh, any difference between uh, any point of this universe, uh, any any point, any any 
any pixel of space and time because everything builds the one and the same in the same construction. And so that was an intuition. And then later I I I, I could just reading different texts. I could just follow what is behind of this uh, mystical text. If, for example, reading Upanishads or any old philosophy, and then you see, you if you understand that the authors, not not everybody, but some of the authors, they had the same experience. So their mission is the same. Same. They try to 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 explain this unity of real of of universe, but not only spe speculative unity, but a real uh, ontological unity that you are one. What was the name of the text that you that you stated? You gave the name of a book, a text that you studied. Uh, uh, Upanishads. No, it, it doesn't matter with uh, because this uh, experience it came not because of books. It came sure. just from itself. Just uh, this celestial voices and everything, and then no, I understand if, the book. The book followed. I, I just wanted, in case the audience was interested in checking it out. Just yes, to, but if you read, for example, you can read uh, this uh, Indian Vedas or Upanishads. If you read Upanishads, it's a good example. Then right. you see they just they describe this Parabrahman and Atman, and the, the world is one Advaita, for example. And then I start realizing what is really Advaita. So Advaita is an experience of Advaita. If you are one. But and then I start developing my own vision. So what does it mean to develop my own vision? I I try, and so I'm doing it right now to fix my intuitions, for example. So if uh, that's the way, if you fix your intuition, then you go the next step and next step, and your vision is more wide and your knowledge is more profound. Because if you don't fix it, at least my 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 brain works in that way. If I'm fixing my, my intuitions, then I, I can go further and further. And so with, with anthropology, I start thinking, what is this the human body, basically? What is the human species at all? How can he be connected to the whole universe? And in that way, I came to this mystical anthropology. And then you can find, as it described in yoga or in, in Chinese inner alchemy, or even in some Islamic texts, or somewhere else, uh, this unity between human being and, and the universe. And so, same story you can find in Native American cultures, in Maya or in Aztecs. Speak. Uh, if you compare mythology uh, of uh, American uh, Native American cultures and mythologies of uh, like European and Asian cultures, you, you can understand that all mythology have to do with the celestial mechanics in certain way with the understanding of cosmos but it is at that time when they uh, developed this mythology they didn't have a, a, a modern mathematics nor modern physics they didn't have any scientific uh, instruments for to fix it and just imagine if you watching the sky and if you understand some algorithms the way it moves uh, in, in within the year, within many years, and then you see all these rhythms, all, all this celestial uh, harmony. But how can you describe it if you don't have any math, if you don't have any any ta tablets, anything like that? Then you try to to write it as a stories. Yes, for example, one a person A 
and the person be they coming together they're going apart and animals and uh, if you see this constellation that it resembles some animal and this constellation and then you build up all the stories but those stories are not just the stories this are the description of celestial mechanics in uh, very uh, obvious in that very obvious uh, um, way for example that moon sun it's very obvious you see uh, like seven stars, uh, gray, big uh, bear, and say, but there are also some hidden movements. For example, some cycles which last uh, thousands and thousands of years. But how can you understand those cycles? How can you check those cycles? That means if you uh, observing sky from generation to generation, and you also make some notice, like in form of mythology, and then you make some slight changes. You uh, additionally you write a new new formats and then new stories. And then you have this complete understanding. And then if you understand it complete the way it works, that means this understanding is also part of your consciousness. And if the the picture of universe is in your your brain, that means your brain is in a magical vibration with the universe in certain way. And then this universe take initiative over and then it start to dictate you the intuitions of the way it works. And then this is like, a, as I call the cosmical meditation. If you take this contact to the universe and then you, if you feel this feedback, then you can just realize and realize your own body as a body of multiverse, not just this small body. And then, but the, the, another point is that the deeper you are in this, knowledge, uh, the more subjective this knowledge is, basically, because if you, it's uh, in, in some way, the, the Godfather is the most subjective things, he's like a multi, a, a super subject, basically, he is, that's why he's within us. So our true core is uh, this, uh, the divine in certain way, because is if you follow also Dupanishads, like let's say this Indian philosophy, they say there are several steps of uh, of understanding: the waking state, sleeping state, deep sleep states, and the next step, the last fourth yeah. step. That means you should understand the the basic things, the core mm, truths, not in the waking state, because in the waking state, everything is like fragmented, everything. But in the sleeping state, and this is also the part of Michael Tump teach me, in the sleeping state, your intuition is more open. Then from one side, it still have to do something with, with your subject subjectivity. From other side, it's like more uh, abstract. And then it's some a knowledge which is not so very, very, like materialistical knowledge is something beyond. And then if in the state of deep sleep, a normal person cannot reflect anything. For, for him, deep sleep is just a gap, but it's not the case. The deep sleep, there is a personality in deep sleep also. And if we awake our personality in deep sleep state, then we should be like Buddha. Because Buddha, to my mind, is not someone who awake in a waking state, like, oh, I got it. Not in the way I got it as an idea, but he woke up in a deep sleep condition. And then in this deep sleep condition, you see this, the God face to face. And the same story later I found in one Hasidic book. 
Tania. Tania is a book written by Alte Rebbe. And uh, there is also some fragments dedicated to this knowledge. Then, so you can face the God face to face. And so far, you, you will see the God, you will die. But you'll die not in a way that you physically you'll die, but your identity as a mortal person will die because you realize your, your own identity, your real identity. So this knowledge is behind of, I believe, behind of all kinds of knowledge. If you even take this Christianity, especially in the Gnostic aspect, not the bureaucratical aspect that might be taught in a seminar or in a university. Right? Because Can it's, you distinguish between the difference between the Gnostic aspect uh, so, so that people understand what you mean? Yes, I, I believe this Gnostic aspect, this is a, a, a mystical Christianity. Because just in the beginning, say, these first Christians who died in a Roman arena, who said, yes, we are, we believe in Christ, and uh, they were not afraid of uh, wild animals and uh, all these martyrs. At that time, there was no, like, symbols of belief of, or symbols of faith, no any uh, church, conciles, nothing, nothing. There was no, no uh, any ideology, any, any fixed ideology. But how people, why people reacted in that way? Not because they uh, tried to, to, to defend a, any special uh, understanding of what is true belief and what is not true. They were moved, inspired by their own intuition. That means this Gnostic intuition. If you check this Gnostical uh, scripts, and then they see, they say, about Christ also, that Christ is someone in, in, within ourselves, inside. So this is your inner intuition. So to be Christ, to be son of God, or maybe daughter of God, to say in the modern terminology, means to understand that the, your body, your identity is exactly, uh, uh, initially is made by God. But And this God is within you, you and you can really understand it if you just you should understand, and you should just uh, try to try to get it. Uh, if this, you don't, the spiritual uh, uh, knowledge or, or uh, connectiveness that you were referring to is this what some people call the Akashic record, or is the Akashic record just part of it, or is that something that you don't really distinguish on? Uh, yes, I think it's it might you might say yes, Akashic record, anything because it doesn't matter basically what words are you using. But even there is a, a, a sense in words as well because we are all part of culture, and in our cultural reality, even in our human reality, if you use language, language means something. But I can give you an example. For for example, we we have different native languages. So you is English, mine is Russian. Someone else has French or anything like that. Even maybe a Swahili in Africa. But this, the native language does not shrink the human identity. You can express yourself fully in your own language. It, it doesn't matter. And the grammar is just a formality. Because even using the formal grammar, this grammar do not shrink your in intuition. Because you feel free even being uh, just boxed in any kind of grammar, English language or a Russian language or whatever. That means that, yes, we can follow certain rules, but nevertheless, those rules cannot provide us from expression our identity in the full scale. And this full scale is not just limited by the grammar. It's something beyond the grammar. 
Okay, very very good. So okay, so uh, b before I had interrupted you, you were sort of uh, talking about if you approach it from a Gnostic Christianity perspective, and that's sort of where I sidetracked you. Yes, basically for, for me, uh, when I say Gnostic, it's not only Christianity. I believe that the Gnosticism itself, this is exactly this old intuition of, of human species connected uh, the human with the universe. And this is the Gnosis, the, the true knowledge to, to understand the way it works. But you should yeah, understand. Any, any religious or philosophical yes, system, yes. it doesn't require the churches, the temples, the bureaucracy system can be considered Gnostic. It's not limited to Christianity or Judaism yes. or Islamic or, or anything. It's just... Uh, yes. And that's, and, and that's why we see, uh, take uh, even this European medieval history. In that time, we see the contacts between Gnostics of Christianity, Islam and Judaism and even Buddhism and Hinduism, between mystics of uh, different religions. I'll say, and the, they all came to the contact discussing something on their own level. But it, it was contacts between even between mystics, not between uh, the officials on the of official church. Between officials, they are uh, limited by official ideology. They cannot just step over the ideology because they are doing a, a, a administrative career and they have their own, uh, their own rules. Like if you take any, any bureaucrat, in, let's say in the White House or in the Kremlin, he should follow certain rules, certain dress code. Otherwise, he can't just be at that place. Yes, but some the the, the tan suit, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the, the the whole tan suit thing. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm sorry. Yes, yes, but Gnostics they they could really they could uh, discuss themselves. Uh, they can't find any 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 uh, uh, proper words and and models of thinking. And uh, David Perry, exactly my my London friend David Perry, once he said. That to my mind, the alchemy is exactly this discourse, provides discourse where the, the mystics from different religions could discuss any issues not being uh, limited by official uh, theology. Because if you say, yes, gold is gold for Jews, for Christians, for Muslims, or any the, the metal is metal and uh, fire is fire and all these natural elements uh, moon is moon, sun is sun. So you can really just uh, co communicate. And also reading some uh, Gnostic texts, even not only Christian Gnosticism, but even Muslim Gnosticism or Jewish Gnosticism. And you can see that everything is the same. Everything is coming from the same source. But what is the same source? And I would say this: the same source is not any special book or any special uh, 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 any any special doctrine, but this is exactly the the nature of intuition. Something what connects the human species as a as a living being with the universe as a fact of reality. And the more we have this feedback, the more we might be the free of all kind of linguistical or ideological limitations. Well, I think this brings us probably to the point where we cyber met, um, where uh, Dr. Parry, uh, our mutual friend, more your friend than mine, but I, I'm, I'm proud to be uh, call him a, 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 an acquaintance that's becoming a friend. Um, and your presentation as part of the NACON conference, which of course is something, which is just a, a, a probably a large summary of a lot of things that you talk about. But I, I want to, be, before we skip over it, 
I, I want to talk about that that slide that that, that you sent me. It was uh, uh, talking about a war between Slavic peoples and reptilians in the, I guess, the the ninth century uh, A.D. No, no, uh, B.C. Um, and <laughs> so, so let, let's tell me about that. Tell me, tell me the history behind that. Okay. Are you going to show this picture or? Well, no, no, it's, 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 uh, there's no place to show it. It's, I mean, uh, but it's, uh, 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 this is a fight between reptilians and slave people. I believe this is the sort of, uh, fairy tales, of course. And then you can find in every culture, the stories about the fight between people and reptilians or any demons or any, uh, uh, like other, uh, 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 Extraterrestrial uh, people, but I believe so. We have basically beyond of this fairy tales, we have like two points. I observe two two aspects. One is of the aspect is really this connection between people, between human and and cosmos. And then if you understand that you are not just a human, so the whole universe with all kind of possible living species living uh, uh, dwelling in this universe. They are also part of you because you are, as a material and spiritual entities, you are not. You are one. It's just a different. Uh, this the observation makes us different. But in a in a state of deep sleep, you fully you can fully understand that everything is one. So, but but of course, uh, that's why in the human mind uh, there is a intuition that something is coming from the universe because the universe is not just a space empty space no it's it's just a living space and even if you it's a part of you but nevertheless it might be all kind of energies uh, of of different life uh, and of different existence that's why uh, uh, from as ancient time the people used to to connect universe and intuition and the mystical experience with an extraterrestrial species. And sometimes you can really see there are some, let's say, some drugs or magical magical mushrooms or magical grass. If you take it and you can visualize all these species, it's also the part of, of our cultural experience. They take this castaneda, for example, yes, and then this mushroom and peyote and uh, cactus. So yes, that makes an experience, you know, ayahuasca. But it's not. But it's just a limited experience because I, I guess the, you should go over this the, the limited forums, and then you see not only they are not only species, but the, everything is one. So the 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 big master of everything is you in the last instance. That's this is one point. The cosmical cosmical species. Another point is it's a, a pretty anthropological point. That what I mean. I mean that the human species, human as itself, like a Homo sapiens, is not just isolated species. We have in our ancestry, we have in our ancestry lines, we have different mixtures with the Neanderthal, with Denisovian people, and with some other uh, other parahuman. Uh, I wouldn't say apes, but common ancestors. And in the in the, in the distant past, when the human race just started its configuration we have some different like species some of uh, beyond of our own species they, the other species they were all also somehow the half 
conscience, I would say. Like they say that Neanderthal could speak or Denisovians could speak. What does it mean? I wouldn't say that they could speak in the modern sense of, uh, of speaking, but they had some sort of like a special communication that was just in the beginning of of consciousness, and that we were all on the, almost on the same level. And uh, that's why there was interbreeding between Homo sapiens and Neanderthal was also possible because we were all animals at that time. Because the interbreeding between human and non-human is not possible. But at that time we were not all humans, and we have some some mixed mixed future. And in that time also there were some species uh, of a bigger size and some of the smaller size, and there were really aggressive cannibals of a bigger size species, like aggressive apes. Yeah, like for example, if you take a uh, um, chimpanzee nowadays, they also they eat each other. Uh, one tribe of chimpanzee could eat another one, so it, they they are cannibals. And we have also cannibalism in uh, also in the human culture, this cannibalism. And that's why I believe that in the distant past, there were some tribes of these big cannibals who were really really fearful for the smaller species who turned to be a homo sapiens because of the limited possibilities, limited uh, power and force, they should be more like more brainy, more brainy. And they developed their brain instead of jaws. And then the homo sapiens started with the reduction of his jaws. The jaw became less and less and the brain more and more. So that means the, the clever species is a winner. And the brutal and uh, big is uh, a loser in that in that uh, drama. And uh, at last we have this last um, chapter of this fight between Neanderthal and uh, and Cro-Magnons. And uh, scientists say that Neanderthal were big and brutal and primitive, and the Cro-Magnon they were more subtle, thin and uh, more uh, more brainy and so they could just trick out the Neanderthal so be, and because of the tricks they became a winner in this situation so i believe this folklore telling about giants and brutal brutal uh, species is coming from from those distant memory when the our ancestors mostly uh, were surround, surrounded by, by other species or subhuman species, uh, but who were pretty dangerous. And even, even some, sometimes, even today, there is one interesting uh, Russian anthropologist from the Soviet time. Now he died uh, almost like 30, 40 years ago, but he's very interesting because he, he dis, his idea is that uh, since we have still this, mixed genetics sometimes in the case of pathology that uh, old genetics might be activated in certain way and then we have in the case of this activation we have in in criminals for example so there are some uh, few maybe one two percent of all the human populations might be this pathological psychopaths who is who just kill people not because of any any reasonable uh, motivation like oh I'd like to get their money or something like that no but this is the program like in, in the program of pre predator 
So they have to kill because this is their natural biological program. And, and that's why they're looking just an opportunity to kill someone. For example, also in the war, yes, who are is volunteers mostly, uh, who are just consciously go to the fight. Exactly people with this kind of genetics because they're looking for, for killing uh, even not 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 only of these people, you might be also a patriot, a, a conscious patriot. But if you're a conscious patriot with consciousness, you kill enemy, but you don't kill any 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 women or children. But if you're a psychopath, you kill everybody. That's the difference. So and then, so I we have... still have these genetics in ourselves. And then, uh, and yes, so the story is still not over. Well, let, let's see if I have it right. To, to so things like. Giants, troll, ogres, elves, dwarves, um, Bigfoots, whatever. They're, they're, they're not, they've, they've been reduced to monsters because of collective memory, but they were just different. I'm going to call it species, even though that's not the right term. I, I don't think that we, sub, they were different subspecies of humanity that lived at the same time at different overlapping times that yes. have been bred out, um, but occasionally the recessive gene or, or that, that trait dominates or gets triggered in a particular individual or set of individuals to show some of those traits, which in, if maybe if it was the larger cannibalistics, that becomes your warrior or your psycho, your serial killer. Uh, but perhaps some of the gentler traits come out if, if you're more of an artist or a thinker or, or, or whatever the case may be. I guess I'm sure in those other sub races of humanity and i don't mean sub by below i just mean because uh, uh, obviously if they're different species you can't successfully breed and and we did so it's the same species so subspecies um of the same race uh you know with with the the bad traits also are the good traits i mean it's all mixed in so yes uh, we we need not focus only on I get. I think you were saying the the larger, maybe the I don't know the the Bigfoots or the ogre uh, types, uh, the, or the giant, you know, the 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 men that were closer to apes than men. Um, the, you know, those might be more of the warrior type, uh, but maybe uh, maybe your description of the Cro-Magnum is is more the artist, philosopher, the scientist, the 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 mathematician. Yes, I think so. It's also not only giants, but also dwarfs, for example. I can remind you when Vikings reached North America, but Vikings were like Scandinavians, mostly like big men, like all the time. Like with, you. Huh? <laughs> like you. I'm not very tall, but just imagine Vikings in their ships. It's like a gym all the time. You are rudering uh, and then you are... Correct. Yes, thousands of kilometers. So you are really, really big like a giant. You are two meters tall, for example, two meters tall, the man. And they reached the shores of Northern America or, or Greenland. And then the, the local population was very small. And the Vikings called them Skrellings. Skrellings, that means, how do you say, no, not nice people, yes, but dwarfs, yes. Because they were like Eskimo compared Eskimo, who is meter one meter fifty to two meters tall, Viking. Well, yes, I, there were the people of. I know for a fact that it wasn't that long ago that the, the average Inca was about either five one or five two male. So if if the average Scandinavian or, or German was six four or six six, they they might feel like a giant, and someone who the average is five one may look like a dwarf. So, uh, but, but I mean, but basically, they see a, a other race of people. 
and they accepted them maybe just visually, maybe psychologically as something different, maybe like a dwarf, yes, something that they speak in co comical language, something, something is just not normal for them. And then uh, later those stories, uh, the, those stories became a part of folklore. Same we can see about the old uh, travelers, for example, old Greeks or Phoenicians who traveled around Africa. Uh, it, so maybe some uh, there were some uh, some tribe, human tribes who are like pygmies, very very small. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean. There's this, this variability of uh, diversity of human race, maybe is take uh, its way for the folklore, and then the in folklore just is the mirror. Yeah, there's, there's a common sense to that. I mean, that that it, it's it's it rings true. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so is is this uh, sort of what you talk about the NACON conference? Uh, like, so what is your take on the Nephilim, the Nephilim aspect of the Nephilim anthropology conference? What, uh, what I believe about Nephilim, I believe if you take some even some Bible stories, uh, let's say, and, and this word itself Nephilim, then you could see a description of, of giants. But uh, uh, for example, the uh, Archangel, uh, how is it, Ar Archangel, uh, Archangel, Archangel uh, Gabriel, or Jebrail, as the Muslims say, according to Jewish and uh, Islamic mysticism, this Gabriel is a giant. So his foot are on, on earth and his head uh, over the clouds, yes. So I believe that all this is like a uh, imagination about the the cosmical species, the the uh, super, the cosmical human. Uh, so if we are realized our cosmical nature, we see that we are these giants basically, and then in some figurative text, in some symbolical text, this idea is described as a giant, as a something a cosmical being and then later in folklore already uh, people believe that this is something physically true so this is really like some uh, like uh, a giant living in on earth let's see so if i understand I, if i understand you correctly so basically if somebody makes that spiritual leap that spiritual growth that the in their mind you know it, it almost is giant like it, it it's enormous in scope it's it's infinite but yes. when somebody tran translates it, transliterates it into something in imagery, and the, the, the way they imagine it would be a giant that, that, that might take a form of light or whatever. And since you can't draw, you know, infinite, you draw Earth to the heavens, and and so yes. It's, yes, exactly. it's just a, it's just a translation. Yes, same example. For example, take this Buddhas of Bamiyan who were destroyed, unfortunately, by Taliban. This big Buddhas of, I don't know how many meters tall, four, five meters tall. So this were just Buddhas, uh, of course, not uh, physical Buddhas. They were like a cosmical Buddhas as a symbol, symbolical, the cosmical bodies, I mean, the cosmical bodies like Dharmakaya, something like that. But the, the primitive people could, might observe this Buddha's understanding that, oh, these are giants. Even the uh, Helena Blavatsky and her disciple, the 
woman of wife of uh, Nicholas Rurich, uh, Russian uh, painter Helen Rurich. She they traveled in Afghanistan and then she say, she she've seen this Bamian Buddhas and and she described in her book. These are really like the size of of uh, old races populated earth. So they were really like five meters tall and then the human species is less than like four meters to three meters and now we are 150, like a completely degenerated species, yes. But she, even an intelligent woman, she understand it as a, a real picture of, of, of real species. But it, I absolutely sure if you understand Buddhist art, Buddhist philosophy, you understand that those Buddhas are just a, a symbol of, of cosmical Buddhas. And that to make it big, it might to impress the, the normal audience, not just the uh, uh, scientists, Buddhist scientists, but right. ordinary so it's not people. a literal translation. It's it's a it's a yes. metaphorical. Uh, yes, yes. So then, if we if we have some big statues, uh, some one might believe that yes, this is the real size. Another story uh, I wrote: one conquistador, Spanish conquistador, in the early uh, conquista of of Mexico, he spoke to some uh, Mexican. Uh, priests, uh, priests, and they say that yes, our ancestors were like giants, and they show him a huge bone, and then uh, this Spanish, Spaniard, he checked this bone, and he said the comparing to the humans' uh, proportions, uh, the species with this bone should be like five meters tall, approximately. Yes, that oh yes, and they believe this is the bone of the ancestor, but uh, later. It, or in, in modern time came out that this was a bone of, of mammut. A mammoth, right, yeah. Yes. So the old people, they might also find any huge bones of, I don't know, Tyrannosaurus or dinosaurs or mammoths. And they believe these are um, the bones of some giants, Nephilim. Sure. They could, they could find the, the skeletal remains of the, the, the flippers of a, of a whale that structurally have the same shoulders as... as humans and think that that was a giant human, but it was just a yes. blue whale. That, that yes, absolutely. The carcass got dragged away by the orcas or sharks or, or the glacier. Or, or, or you can find the skeleton of small monkey and believe that, oh, the, this were dwarfs. Yes, that's why I believe they were, there are different sources of all the stories, uh, different species, like mythology, travelers, bones of different size, but it's all became like in one puzzle, like all those stories. That's interesting. Uh, you, you actually have a, a, an interesting take on things because you are all in on the spirituality. The the soul is infinite. That can be the humanity can be infinite, but on the 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 sort of the fanciful physical stories of of the mythical creatures and whatever. That's just the way that we have translated uh, basically real scientific, uh, you know, uh, archaeological, anthropological, paleontological, zoological evidence and have translated in our heads and it's come down through the generations to be other creatures, chimera, bigger people. But, uh, but, but that's, you know, that's more of a common sense, more scientifically based conclusion. Yes. Uh, but but so. the other side of you is, is entirely spiritual. So uh, you're an interesting dichotomy. Yes, I, I can give you another example. It's not about uh, giants, but it's about uh, the uh, uh, old science. For example, we all know the story that the, the land is flat. Yes, that oh, there is a turtle 
turtle and flat land and this, uh, all the stories I believe. All our ancestors were so stupid, though he belie they believe that uh, the land is flat. But uh, there is interesting uh, discover discovery made by some actually some Western scientists, uh, I guess Americans probably, and uh, so they discover that. Uh, if you take so-called the Bhumandala, Bhumandala is an old Indian image of flat earth. And they describe what uh, the circles within this Bhumandala and different circles, different lands, different uh, like worlds. And so, uh, so this like, like the flat land is composed of different, of different circles and continents, so to say, like in the Buddhist cosmos, Jambudvipa, yes. And in the middle, there is a Mount Meru. And this, this discovery shows that this Bhumandala actually is not the uh, map of, of land. It's uh, the map, map of the solar system. And the solar system is flat, in fact. Ah. And these distances between different continents, are this, the they are proportionally equal to the distances between seven planets uh, composing the solar system, like Jupiter, Mars, and Venus, and so forth, and land. So, and then they see, yes, this is like a, a, a model, not of the land, but this is a model of the solar system. But what is more interesting, and this, uh, the Mount Meru, uh, traditionally, they draw not like coming this, like triangle, but is uh, as, uh, vice versa, like this. Uh, upside down pyramid. Upside down pyramid, yes. And what does it mean? And it was, but I guess it's uh, it's my invention. Yes, that means the, the process of precession. You know, this the X of Earth is doing uh, this movement. So because orbit. the orbit, yes. And if you have this, is exactly makes so if uh, the Meru is the axis uh, of rotation. This is the uh, already a factor for the uh, proved by scientists. So if you have of course, yes, this Bhumandala or solar system, and the, but it's geocentrical system because it's uh, the observer is on Earth. But uh, it goes upside down because of this precession, because this uh, uh, X is moving, it, it makes one turn in 26,000 years. So they're measuring the fixed point is this mountain, so that's why it's the yes, yes. upside down and cone. Then at last, and then at last, you can uh, compare this flat Bhumandala with the astrolabi, you know this astrolabi, mm -hmm. uh, this uh, device to for for see, for sailors that to understand this constellation. But it's it, astrolabi is also it's flat, but it's uh, uh, but it's a symbolical uh, the model of of the sphere. This is a planisphere, so to say. And then if you don't understand, if you are out of uh, beyond of science. You just take this astrolabe as a as a flat land, and then for you it's just a toy. You don't understand the way it works. Same right, it was a tool. mandala and or the turtle, and then it's also the the model. But its model was made in time where we didn't have any 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 any, uh, any mathematics, any proper mathematics. We didn't have any any special symbols. We didn't have any. Any calculations uh, we ha we have it right now? 
Right. And it, and it also could have just been a way to teach children these larger concepts. And the easy way to do it was the fun way was like, hey, there's, it's on the, the picture on the back of a turtle shell. And that, that might be an easy way to il illustrate it. So, uh, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying is, is that it's, it's been interpreted as, as they were flat earthers, but they weren't. They were, they were actually drawing things and creating tools in the only dimensions that they had available to them. They couldn't make a holograph. Or, or a computer simulation, they had to have something practical to use, and it came out on a flat plane. And then, by the way, the, the universe is, you know, on a flat plane. Now, the width of that flat plane might be, you know, 10 million miles, for, you know, for us or whatever, which doesn't feel very flat. But in the grand scheme of a universe, it's basically, it's basically parallel. It's basically flat. So oh, that, that that's really interesting, and you know what? I think I just figured out what zero science is. I just think I, I think I just figured out what uh, what what uh, Rama, Tom, and you mean by spiritual and science uh, blending together. I think that's that's the way. That's the point we are facing to. For example, even uh, like modern physicists like Roger Penrose, a very famous uh, British physicist uh, and Nobel. Uh, a carrier of Nobel Prize for physics, he developed his own like new cosmology view, and he said that uh, this is the point exactly where he trying to he, in in certain points it really re reminds me like a mystical intuitions, and he, even he said himself he said he was actually a partner of David uh, of Stephen Hawking, a close partner. They made some common research as well, and he said. I have the intuition. I I know that the way it works, but I, I still do not have any, enough mathematical tools to explain it. But I'm working on that. That means it, it's just the one example. Some because some some top scientists they're already facing some reality, uh, which is very very close to old mystical revelations. Because if they uh, try to understand. Not only universe, but try to understand even the, uh, our the matter, our uh, microverse, like uh, quantums and then all these uh, yes, strings. So they still have the feedback from the reality, and they are coming. They becoming intuitions, which is difficult to 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 explain. That's why they need to build up their own turtles. What Michael Tam made as well. He 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 uh, built his own turtles. And some some readers said, "Oh, this text is nonsense. It's something very stupid. You can't you can't understand anything from that." But that's that, that's a, 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 the trouble because if you are so advanced, you cannot explain it. Uh, for ordinary people, what do we mean? Because you should invent something. Because, but if you have an intuition, but you you do not have any a, a certain certain words, but you should be an inventor in that case. In in back to some trivial stuff. What's the Russian word for hippie? Hippie is hippie. Just hippie. Estonian yes. author. Also yes. Oh okay. All right. The whole world translated. All right. Well, that was easy. Um, what would you say the focus of your work is now? Yes, now I I just finished one book. Uh, the name is uh, A Celestial Human and His Subjectivity. Oh. Uh, it's about uh, it's about exactly it's about this meditations uh, on what is the nature of of universe and then modern scientists and old mystics 
what they, how they explain it, uh, archaeoastronomy, and then the reflection of universe by in old cultures, and uh, micro, micro and macro world and everything. So it's really a thick, a thick book. It's not still published. I just finished it uh, a few months ago. And my next book is uh, Purusha Yoga or Religion of Pure Cosmos. That means that the word yoga is connection, yes, and yoke, yes. Mm -hmm. It's coming from Indo-European yoke or in English uh, yoke, yoga, connection. And Purusha is the celestial man in uh, in uh, Vedas. Purusha okay. means human and means also the universal spirit. And that Purusha Yoga means this connection between human and cosmic spirit. That means you can understand it as Purusha Yoga. Is or, there any connection between the word Purusha and Russia or Prussia, or is it just coincidence? No, no, no. Russia and Prussia is just the names of the land. Right. Purusha right. Yoga, Pur Purusha Yoga means the, the uh, connection between uh, human species and the universe. Or another uh, name is Purusha Yoga or religion of the, the religion of pure cosmos. That means religion, word religion is coming from Latin religio. Religio means also to unite. Religion means unification. Religion of pure cosmos, this means in my in my uh, connotation, unification with the pure cosmos. That means Purusha Yoga in English means the religion of pure cosmos. So it's the same, like sim uh, that's uh, like a uh, synonyms. So and then in but in that book I write about I try to to bring this also modern science and uh, with uh, this brain rhythms and uh, any fix uh, how to fix different states of mind waking uh, uh, sleeping deep sleep uh, algorithms of our brain and uh, different regimes of our physiological conditions also with the with the practice of yoga uh, description of inner body in in hatha yoga in chinese alchemy uh, how the technique might help us to just realize our inner nature by means of pranayama fasting for example on different exercises yes for, for example there is a, i i just as, as an example i bring you as to one one, uh, I give you just one point. For example, uh, there is a scientific approved that if you are, there are, there are different types of activities which uh, stimulates your delta rhythm in your brain. Delta rhythm means the rhythm of deep sleep state, delta rhythm. And in, in meditation also, the delta rhythm is, is, is present, but not only delta rhythm, because delta rhythm is just deep sleep, and, but you should bring additionally some rhythms. And then it makes you uh, like uh, your condition more like magically, more more yogic. But it is delta rhythm. And then uh, scientifically is proved that if you are fasting, for example, if you are doing brahmachari, if you avoid sex, for example, right. or if you uh, are, keep silent, 
all these activities are stimulating delta rhythm. That means, but the delta rhythm also, the, the rhythm of deep sleep is also served as a, like a certain reunification element, certain oil, which brings all together all your functions in your body, all your brain functions. Because, for example, if we are in deep sleep, in the condition of delta rhythm, in this delta rhythm, all other rhythms of our brain, which are necessary in our waking state, when we think, uh, when we try to solve some problems and uh, uh, so forth. In, in the deep sleep, uh, they deep sleep bring a, a certain harmony between all these different rhythms. That's why deep sleep is very, very important. Same delta rhythm, but brings not only the mental harmony, it brings also a physical harmony. Because if delta rhythm is not only in the brain, but also in the body, that means that the harmony between different your, uh, your humors, your cells, and uh, the parts of your body is coming more and more harmonial, har harmonical. That's why this practice like fasting, uh, avoiding of sex, uh, keeping uh, quiet, be quiet, and uh, something else that helps your physical body to be more harmonical. Hmm. So this is just one, one, one part from my book. All right, let me ask you one other question. This might be a big question. I hope it's not. We, we've gone a little long. So if there's some way to make it a shorter answer, that'd be wonderful. I'm not sure if it's possible. But you, way back when you said that part of the movement was anti-globalism. Are you still anti-globalism and why? Well, to understand anti-globalism, that means against the uh, power of great corporations who are ready to bring cause an ecological catastrophe because of, of, of financial profit. This is what I mean, anti-globalism. So anti, not anti any, 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 any global movement, but anti-global uh, form of capitalism, which is bring destruction. And first of all, in ecology and in uh, anthropology probably as well. And if you read this last book of Klaus Schwab, Klaus Schwab is the founder of, of Davos Forum. Uh, and then, then he's already uh, applying for uh, for the new type of economy, for ecology, yes, and the ecological agenda is very, very strong now because the people just, they wake up, even the big corporations, they just woke up and they understand that if no, no ecology, no profit at all, that you should do something. Mm -hmm. that, that's why I mean anti-globalism, it's against the destructive capitalism. No, uh, no customers, no for... customers. Huh? <laughs> no customers, no customers. <laughs> it's pretty simple. No, no people, no, no people, no people, no money, no customers. <laughs> it's... But yes, there, there should be customers, but we should just elaborate a new product, which is the ecologically correct products. Typhoid, cholera, and malaria are not business plans. <laughs> I mean, so yeah. If people want to find your work and want to find you now, where, where can they find you? This is a free promote zone. My work, yes, my work are available only in Russian language. There is no, no any, any, any translations. Yes, I have some, a few articles translated into English. But uh, yes, if there would be any translator, any, any person who would like to translate my, my books, should be nice. Yes, we, can, we could come to conclusion, yes, if it, might, it should be interesting for, for English-speaking um, English readers. But now only in Russian. Okay, so now if people want to hear you speak, they well, they have this podcast, but aside from that, because the, they've, if they've gone this far, they've already heard it. 
so then they can uh, register for the NACON conference and they can hear you again speak uh, there as well. All right. Yes. If there will be if there will be any any questions, they can write me. Uh, I have my, for example, Facebook Vladimir Wiedemann. It's uh, just uh, uh, as uh, as my Skype, uh, so they can just uh, knock me and uh, come to my friends, and uh, we can discuss in English. And uh, what else? YouTube. I have also YouTube. Also Vladimir Wiedemann. Uh, my streams also in Russian because, as I said, my native language is Russian. And then in Russian, I feel myself like free to uh, to explain, to speak to my audience. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, no too many translations because I just I myself I do not risk to translate my books into English because English is still a very complicated analytical uh, language. If you are not a very uh, uh, native speaker, you can't just really write uh, everything in the proper way. It, it's just oh, a waste of yeah. time. Well, if you're on social media at all, you'll you'll see that even people uh, that are steeped in English don't write it properly. So it's a very complicated language. Um, maybe needlessly so. Maybe that's part of the game. I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, all right. Well. Um, well, I don't, uh, you know, the, if, if you ever do YouTube in English or German, I mean, yeah, don't forget the customers are, books the are also, also like this one in, in Estonian. I have a few books uh, in Estonian, but it's a very small language. And I don't 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 believe the people would be interested in that. OK, and this and the Slavics did not defeat the reptilians. That's a that's a that's a folklore. I uh, guess so. Well, that's unfortunate. All right. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, I thank you very much, and uh, thank you for your time. And uh, people go check him out, especially if you speak uh, Russian or Estonian. Go check out his work. But it, but if not, the NACON conference is in English. Um, so you'll get to hear him again on that particular the topic of that day and that conference. So once again, thank you very much, uh, Vladimir, for your time. Appreciate it very much. Yes, and by the way, if someone speaks German, I speak German well as, also. I can even better than English, just in case. <laughs> what about Spanish? Did you learn Spanish in Colombia? Yes, yes, I speak Spanish, but I didn't speak Spanish for many years because uh, that's why I understand everything. But to to speak in Spanish, I I forget some words. It takes me it takes time just to to remember everything. You know what? That was a very stupid question for me to ask because my editor, who you met, my producer, who you met earlier, uh, La Sicaria. Uh, criticizes me for not learning Spanish, and I just blew it that you learned Spanish in, in like a year, and and I I'm I still speak Spanish like Tarzan. So uh, this may be the last time anyone ever sees sees or hears from me. This may be my last recording. Um, all right, thank you for coming into the Garden of Doom. I look forward to seeing you. Uh, we're recording this in August. I, I'm not. This will drop probably closer to the conference for obvious reasons. It's for promotion, uh, but I will see you in October at least virtually during the conference. And I look forward to it. Yes, sure, Jeff. Yes, thank you for your for your time. And then, uh, my congratulations to all of our uh, audience. Yes, and then I say hello to everybody. And I hope we will we'll, we'll meet again uh, and we discuss uh, the fresh fresh news. Excellent. <laughs> I look forward to it. All right, all check out next week. And I think it's appropriate to end this show by saying peace. Take care, Vladimir.
Stop. Stop. 